How's everybody doing? Hey, can we give it up for Seth real quick? Um, Seth is, uh, him and his wife Megan just moved here from Portland and, um, what, like a few months ago, something like that, a couple months ago, and so they're brand new, and they've been kind of coming and getting plugged in at Heritage, and he's a phenomenally talented musician, he's going to be helping me a lot with worship and stuff, so we welcome him. (laughs) All right, guys, turning your Bibles to Mark chapter 4. Can't think of anything I would rather be doing tonight than being with you guys, preaching the Word of God. Uh, What an amazing family we have at Heritage, amen? Such a blessing. We are trucking through the book of Mark in this uh, series about discipleship, talking about what it is to be a disciple, what it is to make disciples, and uh, we're picking it up here in chapter 4, verse 26. Let's pray. In fact, would you guys take 20 seconds and would you just to yourself even just invite the Holy Spirit into this place and uh, would you ask God to speak through me? Uh, and to speak to you the word of God, and then I'll close this, and then we'll get, we'll get going. God, your people are gathered here. Uh, for you, in your name, uh, centered around your son, Jesus Christ. Our our attention is focused on your word, Lord. So Holy Spirit, you are welcome to come here. God, we tonight are not interested in anything that we can produce in ourselves. We're not interested in anything that I can do uh, to communicate on my own. We're not interested in any of my takes or thoughts on the word or our takes or thoughts on the word, Lord. We're interested in the supernatural of your Holy Spirit speaking to the depths of our heart tonight. So would you penetrate with your word, Lord Jesus? Would you magnify and exalt yourself? Would you sit in your rightful place, your throne on our hearts, God? Lord, whoever's in here that needs to hear directly from you a word of prophecy, God, I pray that would be spoken through your word. I pray that would be received, God. Most of all, we pray that, Jesus, you would be made much of through your word. Holy Spirit, please come. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Mark chapter 4, verse 26. We're going to start with 26 through 34. There's two small parables that I want to take on first. Um, We're not going to spend a ton of time on them, but two small parables that I think correlate. And then there's a story about Jesus and a storm that we're going to really cue in a little bit more on. So this, this message could pretty much be cut in two. So we're going to start with the first half. So verse 26, and he said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts the sickle, because the harvest has come. Verse 30. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God, or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all seeds on the earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. 
He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. Let's stop there for right now. So there's two separate parables here. If you guys notice that, your Bible may have them broken up. There's the first parable, which is the parable of the, as mine would call it, in the uninspired heading, the parable of the seed growing, and the second parable is the parable of the mustard seed. Okay? Uh, Both of these parables are describing the kingdom of God, which is exciting to me. Anytime I hear a parable or I hear Jesus say the words, the kingdom of God is likened unto, or how should we describe the kingdom of God, it perks my ears. So when I read the text that I get to teach tonight, I was really excited about that um, because the kingdom of God is supernatural. The kingdom of God is outside of something that we can understand. Um, We can understand parts and pieces of it in our physical um, finite minds, but the kingdom of God is something that ultimately, ultimately we'll spend an eternity understanding. So when Jesus says, hey, let me give you a little clue into something that you cannot fully understand, it perks my ears. I want to hear what he says. Jesus takes physical things around him, such as seeds and mustard seeds and branches and trees, and he, he, he draws these pictures for us because we're visual people for us to understand things that we can't understand. And so he's painting pictures for us, two pictures here of the kingdom of God, which is exciting. The first parable we're going to look at um, is a unique parable to Mark. Now, there's something called the synoptics. That's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Those are three books that have a lot of overlapping stories. Um, John is a little bit different, but they're all centered around the person and work of Jesus Christ. So Mark is the shortest of the synoptic gospels. That's what we're going through right now. And this parable specifically is only in Mark. It's not in Matthew or in Luke. So again, that's pretty interesting. Um, If you guys were here last week, you'll remember, uh, what was our pastor's name? Jeff? Tell him I said that. Oh, man. Oh, we love Jeff. Um, last week, Jeff talked about the uh, sower, the parable of the sower and the seed. And uh, I want us to kind of separate those out. Okay, so if you remember last week, there was the, the parable of the sower seed. And that was where the, the farmer goes and he spreads the seed among the different soils. And some of it falls in, in thorns and some of it falls in shallow soil. And some of it falls in the birds, snatch it up, and then some falls on good soil. Um, the emphasis in these parables, even though it is concerning seeds still, the emphasis in these parables is more about the seed itself than it is the soil. The last parable last week was more about the soil, sort of talking about how our hearts are like soil and we can either, either the Lord can grow in our hearts, either the Lord can, you know, how we hear the word, we could be receptive or not. This is more talking about the seed. The emphasis is on the seed, okay? Um, I believe that the seed in these parables, and you can disagree with me on this, this is just what I think. Uh, I believe that the seed in these parables is Jesus. I do. I believe that's the seed. Um, here's one reason why Jesus refers to himself as a seed in regards to the crucifixion in John 12, 24. You can jot that down and look at it later. Um, but he says, in, in talking about going to glory, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but its death will produce many new kernels, a plentiful harvest of new lives. Now he's talking about himself in that, and he's talking about going to the cross. He says, if I don't go to the cross then I can't go to glory. If I don't go to, go to glory and go to the Father, then the kingdom isn't going to happen. The church isn't going to happen. And it's a similar imagery here. So I think that in these two parables we're going to look at, I think that the seed is Jesus. Okay, let me just make that clear. So if you're taking notes, five things on this first parable that I just want to note quickly. Number one, the kingdom of God is a process of growth. Okay, the kingdom of God is a process of growth. Or growth. Look at verse 28. Jesus says, the earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. So you notice it's a progression. It's something that's happening. It's a process. It's not just something that happens like that. 
Farming doesn't just wake up and it's done. It's a process. It happens over time. First, there's the little green leaf coming out of the ground. My wife is growing basil and these cool little things. And last night, was that last night? A couple nights ago, I tried to, to get something off the desk and I knocked her basil plant on the floor. Everyone say, bad husband. <laughs> bad husband. Um, so I picked it all up and I tried to put the dirt back in as much as I could. And the poor little thing was just like flopped over the side. Brutal. But it's a process. We've been watching this thing grow and it's like, you know, every day it's a little bit more. It's a process. It's growing. Um, the illustration of plant life in the Bible is used a lot. If you guys ever noticed that or picked up on that. I mean, Jesus talks about fruit. Um, you got in the Old Testament, Israel sometimes pictured by like, like, like an olive tree or olive branch or, or you see like... Um, different trees and seeds and always the Bible's always using plant life to, to describe uh, different things in the Bible which I think is interesting but what's implied there with that is that it's always a process of growth you don't plant a tree and then it just happens the next day it takes years okay there's a process of growth and a lot of the times the Bible talks about us even as being trees that we're like trees and that it takes a while our sanctification process takes time it's a growth process and here in this specific section of scripture, it's talking about the kingdom, the, the playing out of the kingdom from when Jesus comes to when he comes again. It's going to be a process. It's going to be a growth process. It's going to take time. So the implication is that it does not happen overnight. It's a process. Number two, the kingdom of God will grow and come in God's chosen timing, okay? Emphasis on will. The kingdom of God will grow and come in God's chosen timing. Look at our text in verse 27. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, okay? So he knows not how, but it happens. Okay, the farmer goes out, he plants his seed. He doesn't understand fully what's going on there. <laughs> I mean, do we really, do any of us really? I mean, maybe there's like a biologist or a scientist in here who's like, yeah, I get it, but I don't understand how it works. Put a seed in the ground, it grows. I don't know why, I don't know how. It just does. But the point of the text is, the point of the parable is here, is that the kingdom is going to grow. Jesus is saying, look, this thing's starting small, but it's going to happen. It's going to grow. It's going to become what I want it to be. Now, the point I'm trying to make here is that we can't force it, though. Okay, over, over the time of history, lots of different people in the early church and throughout things, they've tried to force the kingdom of God. Maybe if we do X, Y, and Z, then Jesus will come in glory now. The kingdom will be established now eternally and we won't have to deal with this world anymore. One example of that is the, is the zealots tried to force the kingdom on stage by revolution. They were trumped out in history by Rome. Uh, the Pharisees believed that the kingdom of God could be brought to emerge by observance of the law. So like maybe if we're just righteous enough, maybe if we follow the Torah enough, then Jesus will just come back and, and own the place. Um, another example is, you guys remember when Jesus is on the scene, they came and tried to make him king. And he fled because he didn't want to be made king. Because ultimately, he didn't come for that reason yet. He came to atone for the sins of his people. Okay, and they tried to make him king, so he fled. They wanted the kingdom now. They were under the tyranny of Israel. Or I'm sorry, of, of Israel was under the tyranny of Rome, the Roman Empire. And they wanted out. They wanted to be, they wanted to rule. They didn't want to be under the tyranny of anyone. So they said, Jesus, why don't you come in now? You're our king. You're our guy. Come on in and rule. And you remember that time when Jesus... He's talking about going to the cross and Peter like rebukes him for that. And Jesus strongly replies like, get behind me, Satan. It's because Peter was trying to push something on Jesus that was never his point. Jesus didn't come to establish his rule and reign yet. He came to die for the sins of his people. He's gonna come again to be a king. He's gonna come again to rule again. But, but the disciples and his followers were trying to push that on. They're saying, we want you to rule now. We want you to be the king now. So the kingdom again, the kingdom of God will grow 
and come in God's chosen timing. First uh, Corinthians three five through six. I'll just read it. It says, "What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each." He's talking about the church and the growth within the church. He says, "I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth." So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. So God is the one that gives the increase. God is the one that's pushing the kingdom. God is the one that's making all these things happen. Number three, God has planted a seed in us and he will grow it. Okay, and this is a little more personal here. I think that this parable of this seed can be taken to obviously mean the kingdom and, and uh, what God's doing in that sense, but it also can be taken on a personal level. In 2 Peter 1.3, this is one of my favorite verses. It says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So you plant that seed in the ground, right? And yes, you water it, and yeah, it takes sunlight. But that seed has everything inside of it that it needs to grow. That seed, that seed has, it's, I don't know if seeds have DNA, but it has, what it, know, it has what it needs to know what it needs to become. It has what it needs, and so too with you guys. When you got saved, God gave you a gift. The gift's called the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit lives within you like a seed. And everything that you need for life and godliness is contained in that, okay? Everything that you need. God has given us all that we need to grow and flourish in him, whether it feels like you're growing or not. You guys ever plant a tree in your yard and you're like, this thing's just never gonna grow. It's just not. There's some tree, we planted, we planted three trees in my yard when I was a kid. Two poplars and those things like fly up like really fast, they grow. They're huge now. And then we planted a third tree and this tree grew so slow. I mean, I'd like come back for three, uh, it'd be like three years, I'd moved away and stuff, I'd come visit, I'm like, this tree hasn't grown at all. But it's growing, right? It is. It's not dead, it's, it's growing. That's how it is sometimes with us. Now, now put yourself in the shoes, think about this, put yourself in the shoes of, of, of uh, the early church, okay? So Jesus steps onto the scene, does all this miraculous and crazy stuff, and then in a matter of years later, you got Caesar Nero running around in his chariot, burning Christians. They're throwing them into, into the, uh, the, the arena with lions getting eaten alive. And they're like, what is going on here? Is this thing going to happen or what? I mean, we thought this would happen in like 50 years. Where is Jesus? It's going to happen. It's going to happen. But it's going to happen at his pace. It's going to happen on his timing, on his clock, on his watch. And same, the same goes in your life, personally. Maybe you got saved 20 years ago and you're like, Lord, I just thought I'd be more spiritual. (laughs) I just thought I'd be wiser. I just thought I'd have more stuff together in my life. You're growing. You're growing. Sometimes it doesn't seem like it. Sometimes it doesn't feel like it, but you're growing. Listen to this. This is a cool quote out of a commentary. It says, the fruit is the result of the seed, right? The end is the implicit, or I'm sorry, the end is implicit in the beginning, the infinitely great is already active in the infinitely small. In the present and indeed in secret, the event is already in motion. Those to whom it has been given to understand the mystery of the kingdom see already in its hidden and insignificant beginnings the coming, the kingdom of God. I love that. It says the infinitely great is already active and the infinitely small. Things start small and sometimes they take time, but God's working. God's working in you guys. God's working in his kingdom. Fourthly, our Lord loves to make seemingly small things great. Let's look again at the second parable, verse 30 through, 30 through 32. With what can we compare the kingdom of God, Jesus says, or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown in the ground is the smallest of the seeds on the earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. 
Okay, so he gives a second parable of a seed here, and I think that they're similar in some ways. I believe the emphasis of the second parable is more of the contrast of the smallness of the seed to the grandeur of the plant that follows, okay? And if we're, again, if we're, if we're tracking here with the seed being Jesus, Isaiah 53, 700 years before Jesus came, it prophesied about him, and it said something specific about what Jesus was gonna be like. It said, for he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Jesus came humbly. You guys know that? He came humbly. I mean, Jesus was a carpenter from Nazareth. There was nothing about him that was to be desired. There was no, he wasn't like the superstar religious guy. He wasn't like the super uh, general athletic leader. He wasn't Russell Crowe, you know what I mean? Like he was just a guy. He was just a normal guy. He had very humble beginnings. Just like this parable that Jesus is saying. He's saying the kingdom of, his, the kingdom of heaven, he doesn't, he doesn't say the kingdom of heaven is like the Roman Empire. It's massive and dominating, Right? He doesn't say that. He doesn't say the kingdom of heaven is like a redwood tree. It's just stout and thick and powerful. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say the kingdom of heaven is like, I mean, think of something cool like Mount Everest. He doesn't say any of that. He says it's like a mustard seed. It's just small, seemingly insignificant, not really anything that you would write home about. Probably not even something you would trade your donkey for, like magic beans, you know? Really, really just an unimportant thing. But this is the beginning of the kingdom of heaven. And I, I truly believe Jesus is talking about himself. Isaiah 53 says he, there was nothing about him to be desired. Jesus is the epitome of humble beginnings. I mean, God, the, the creator, became incarnate. That's what's so amazing. He became this, this man. He became nothing. But then from Jesus has come infinitely more than they could have ever imagined. I mean, Christianity is huge. <laughs> It's insane the amount of influence that the church has had, even just looking from a secular standpoint, looking from a non-believer and stepping back and looking at what the church has become from Jesus. You know what I mean? Like, that's insane. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven, it's, right now, it's just a mustard seed. It's just, just me and my disciples on the road. But it's gonna be huge. It's gonna be large. It's gonna be all-encompassing. I love that. And the same thing with us, you guys. He loves to take small things and make them great. Let's look, let's look at the second, second chunk of scripture here. And this is the one that I feel like God really has a word for, for heritage here. I'm excited. So Mark chapter four, if you, if you guys are asleep, here we go, wake up. Verse 35, on that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across the other side. Okay, so they're going to go across the other side of the sea. We don't know exactly why. It doesn't really matter. Leaving the crowd, they took him and with them in the boat, just as he was, and the other boats were with them. And a great windstorm arose. Okay, now don't just picture like some, I mean, we're talking like major windstorm. We're talking like catastrophic, like flip the boat over, lights out kind of windstorm here, which happens a lot on that sea. And the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling but he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke, rebuked the wind, and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? I love it. They're scared of the waves, and then they're scared of Jesus. 
In fact, let me say it this way. They're scared of the waves. They're terrified of Jesus. They're greatly afraid of Jesus in that moment. Why? So I want to talk about fear a little bit. I want to talk about fear. The reality of what I believe a lot of what fear really is, is fear is the lack. And listen, fear is the lack of control. When you can't control something, you're afraid of it. Right? Now, the disciples are losing control of their boat, right? And it doesn't matter. I mean, they're fishermen. I'm sure that their boat was decent, you know what I mean? But they're losing control of their boat. The waves are crashing. The wind is blowing. The the rain is pouring. And they have utterly reached a point of fear where they say, we have lost all control of the boat. And so they they go down and they they bug Jesus. The the thing is about that is is I truly believe (laughs) that, that we are a culture that is afraid, okay? I think we're terrified because, well, maybe not, all, maybe not believers, but I think as, as a whole, I think our culture, the non-believers, the people you work with, the people that are in your schools, the people that you, go, you, you, you work with every day, they're scared to death, okay? And so what they're scared of is that they don't have control. So what they do is, is, is we as a culture in America, we put all of our efforts into gaining control. Okay, so I have some examples of our culture's obsession with control in America. You ready? Number one, money. We think money gives us control, okay? Money uh, will buy us control over our anxiety. So if my stuff breaks, I can go get another one. Um, we think money can buy us everything. So we, we, we are obsessed with money because it gives us control. Uh, divorce. Why is divorce so high in America? It's about control. It's about control. Yeah, my wife's keeping me from being who I want to be. My wife's keeping me from doing the things that I want to do. I'm no longer in control of my life, so I'm going to divorce you, and now I'm going to go be in control of my life, right? That's, that's one big reason. People buy big cars to be in control, right? No, no offense if you have a big car, but people love to buy big cars because they're like above everyone, right? I mean, we're in control of the road, you know? I have a little car. Insurance. People... Love insurance because it makes them feel like they have control. So if my house gets swept away or if something goes bad health-wise, I'm covered. No, I have nothing against these things. Let me just state, state that, okay? But, but it's about control. Insurance feels good because it feels like you're in control. Housing. Hey, if I have the right house in the right neighborhood, then I'm in control. I don't have to worry about getting stabbed on my way out to the car. I'm in control. Things like the union. Again, nothing against the union, but it gives you control, Hey, no one can tell me that I don't have, I can work, I can go strike, and I can do whatever because I'm in the union, so I have control over my job, right? People love that. Prescription drugs. You get sick, you probably need to go eat some carrots for the next 10 years, but hey, why? Well, I got control. I'll just go get some prescription drugs, and I'll feel better right away. It's all about control. I don't want to get healthy. I want to feel good right now. I want control over my health. I don't want my health telling me what I, nothing is prescription drugs. I've taken prescription drugs. The, let me just get that clear. But we want control. We don't, we don't want to get healthy. We want the quick fix. I want control over my health. I want to be good now. I want to be healthy now. I want to feel good now. I want control of my life. Birth control. Nothing against birth control. It controls our life. I don't have kids, so we're 36, so we're going to use birth control. It's, it's control. Abortion, which I am against, is control. Oh, I have control over my own body. You're not going to tell me that I have to have a baby right now, so I'm going to kill it so I can have control of my life. Lawsuits. Oh, I don't like how that company treated me, so I'm going to sue you guys because I have control over you guys. 
Things like homeowner associations. I, I lived in a homeowner association place where I couldn't keep my garage higher than this. I got, I got in trouble for my garage door was higher than two feet. Because people want control over my house. They want their neighborhood to look a certain way. They want control. Plastic surgery. I don't like the way I look. So I'm going to get plastic surgery to affect the way that I look because I want control of my looks. Right? Sex changes. People are doing that. I don't like that I'm a guy. I don't like that I'm a girl. So I'm going to change myself so I have control over my life. Things like, things, things that, that are good. Things that are good. Like, like makeup. Ma- nothing wrong with makeup. Right? But it can be a control thing. I, I want to look the way I want to look. Our culture is obsessed in making millions and millions of dollars off of control, right? Are you getting the point here? Things like steroids. I, I want to get bigger than I am, so I'm going to use steroids. Best example of all, my wife worked at Starbucks. And she said she would have cr- people just order the craziest drink because they want control over their drinks. I want my drink to be a certain way. And she had a lady that would order, see if I can get this right, a half-calf Two shot, no, half calf, triple shot, two pump vanilla with caramel sauce on the sides and no lid, 185 degrees soy latte. Now she probably has some control issues, right? I mean, dang, like she wants control. And we all want control. Why? Because we're afraid. We're afraid. What if, I, what if I don't look good enough? Well, I'll do whatever I have to do to control that. What if I'm not safe in my house? I'll do whatever I got to do to control that. What if when I want to get over, there's a bigger car? I'm going to get a bigger car, so I'm in control of that. We want control because we're afraid. That's what scares us is not having control. But the truth of the matter is, guys, is the gospel would say we don't have control. We just don't. I'm sorry. I don't care how much money you have, insurance you have, how much plastic surgery you've had. You don't have control. Someone might still think you don't look good. You don't have control. (laughs) I hope I don't get in trouble for this one. Man. You should see the ones I scratched off. (laughs) Isn't this why we create idols though, right? Because God isn't really very controllable, is he? This is why the gospel is so hard for people to believe and they don't want to hear it because what we're saying is that, hey, the gospel is that you submit yourself and your control to God and say, God, it's about you. It's about what you want. I submit my life to you. And we don't like that. Why? Because we want control. So we live in idolatry. We worship our kids. We worship our money. We worship our stuff. We worship our looks. We worship our fame, our our, our position. We worship what people think of us. We worship everything because we can control those things. In ministry, it's easy to worship what people think of you because you can control that. You can be fake. I hope you guys like me. I can control that. That's my idol. In everything that you do, there's opportunity for idols. And the reason that we do that is because we want to control our God. We don't want to be controlled by our God. So back to our story. They're terrified because they're losing control. The storm has taken over. They're going down and they know it. So they haul her into the bottom of the boat and they say, Jesus, where are you at? What's the deal? We're losing control up here. So Jesus comes up, right? Now, I want to talk about what it is to fear the Lord, okay? I want to talk about what it is to fear the Lord. My wife and I, we, we were talking about, we don't, we don't get this. What is it to fear the Lord? <laughs> I mean, we were just talking about that. I, hopefully, this will help a little. Number one, to fear the Lord is to recognize his power, okay? You might write that down. To fear the Lord is to recognize his, actually, write this down, to recognize his supreme power. Supreme power. So Jesus comes up, and what does he do? So he woke up, he rebuked the wind, and said to the sea, 
Peace, be still. The wind ceased. There was a great calm, and they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Jesus comes up, and he speaks, and creation submits. Okay, now this is early in the ministry, right? So they haven't seen too much crazy stuff yet, and they see Jesus get up and speak, and nature obeys him. They just lost control, right? I mean, whoa, that's that's intense. Now, what's happening there? I just want to take a second. I want to talk about this. What's happening? There's something big happening here. Jesus, if you guys don't know this already, Jesus is the Logos. He's the Word of God. If you go back to Genesis, Jesus is in the Trinity at the very beginning of the Bible when it says, in the beginning was God, and God created the heavens and the earth. See, God spoke the heavens and the earth, okay? And then you, you learn in Colossians, it says, again, talking about creation, for by him were all things, talking about Jesus, for by him were all things created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So when God created the heavens and the earth, he did it through Jesus, through the word, through the Logos. So what they're basically seeing right there is Jesus speaking submission to creation. That's intense. <laughs> I mean, that's, what would you do if some guy just stood up and, and said, stop it, and a hurricane just quit? It'd freak you out, right? Especially if you just thought he was some cool pastor, prophet dude. You'd be like, man, I thought you were just a cool spiritual guy. I know you could control nature. It's happening. So, n- number one, re- recognize supreme power. What does Jesus say in Matthew 10, 28? He says, fear not them which kill the body. Fear not the storm, right? Fear not nature that can destroy your earthly body, but cannot kill your soul, he says, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Who are we supposed to fear? Nature? No. We're supposed to fear God. Okay, well, how does that work? Because, I mean, the, the idea that I think, when I think about God, I don't want to think of fear. I mean, fear involves, like, trembling and scared. Like, I mean, fear, I think of, like, things that are evil, you know? So how do I fear God? Well, number two, it doesn't just stop at the awe. Okay, now, let, let, let's, let's, let's say this much, that the apostles didn't really know Jesus yet, <laughs> okay? I mean, they didn't really know him yet. They were terrified of him, and that's where the fear of God starts. That's when you get saved. You say, Lord, whoa, you're God, I follow you. But it doesn't end there, okay? They get terrified of Jesus, more scared than they were of the storm, but it doesn't end there because, secondly, truth uh, or trust his nature. The fear of God is to trust his nature. Now let's face it too, this story is relatable for all of us, right? I mean, how many of us right now, how many of us right now are sitting there and you have lost control of your life, okay? Or you feel like you're losing control of an area of your life. This addiction has gotten out of hand. I don't know how my marriage got there. I don't know how I got this far from God. I don't know how my kids are this rebellious, 20 years ago when I pictured, when I was Sam's age and I pictured my life in 20 years, it was over here and now it's over here. I'm losing control. I mean, how many of us are in that position or have been in that position or will be in that position of your life where you have lost control and it's scary? Okay, well, the first thing you need to do is that, is realize that God is scarier. Okay, can I say that? God is scarier because he just trumped what was scary in the first place. It's like the monster that eats, the bigger monster eats the smaller monster. I mean, it's just, that's a horrible analogy. <laughs> just chop that one right out. We're all, we all feel like we're losing control sometimes, right? Listen to this. 
Tim Keller, this is a great quote. I love this. He says, if you are at the mercy of the storm, its power is unmanageable and it doesn't love you. Okay, we can pause right there. That's huge. The storm doesn't love you. Can I say that? I mean, it's going to engulf you. It doesn't care about you. You think the issues that you're struggling with are going to say, oh, you know, you've had enough. It's cool, you know. No, the issues you're struggling with, the lack of control, the storm that you're going with, it's going to engulf you. It will engulf you. Why? Because it doesn't love you. It's just a storm. Who does love you? The creator of the storm, the one that you should really be scared of. He says the only place you're safe is in the will of God. But because he's God and you're not, the will of God is necessarily, immeasurably, unspeakably beyond your largest notions of what he is up to. And then I love this. He timely places this quote of the lion and the witch in the wardrobe in Narnia, if you guys are familiar with that, where he's talking about Aslan and, and, and the girl asks the beaver <laughs> about Aslan. She says, is he safe? You know? And she says, of course he's not safe. Of course he's not safe. Who said anything about being safe? But he's good. He's the king. <sighs> is our God safe? No. He breathes stars. Go read Revelation. Tell me whether you think he's safe. If you're going to fear anyone, fear him, right? But he's good. He's the king. He's good. And we can rest in that. Praise the Lord for that. Proverbs 1.7 says, you guys have heard it, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, right? The beginning of wisdom, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Why is the fear of the Lord the beginning of wisdom? Well, firstly, because it places all created things in their place. Trumped by the glory and the grandeur and the power and the magnitude and the splendor of God's power. Trumped. It puts it in its rightful place. That thing that you're going through, that storm, that struggle, let me just tell you right now, it's in its rightful place below God if you, if you put him in his rightful place. Secondly, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and this is huge, you might write this down, because you're forced to have no control which produces faith. Can I say this? That place you feel like in your life where you feel like you have no control, that's a good place. Okay? That place where you feel like, man, this storm is out of hand. It's crazy. I don't know how to deal with it. I don't know how to fix it. I'm scared. That's a great place. Why? Because you in that place can realize that God is the only one that can save you. That's where you need to be. You need to be in a place where you realize, I'm out of control, and that's the gospel. The gospel is saying, God, I'm not only out of control, I don't want control. You have control. So whatever you dish my way, whatever you allow for my sanctification, whatever you allow so that the chaff can be burned away, so that my faith can be purified to the purest point, whatever you allow, I trust you because guess what? You're in control. And that's terrifying to the non-believer. Why? Because they don't know God. They don't know our king. He's good. He's good. We trust him. He loves us. We can rest on that. What does Jesus say to them in verse 40? He says, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? He doesn't get it. Why are you guys afraid? I love you. I'm here. I created this heavens and earth. I created those waves. Why are you afraid? Listen to this. 1 John 4, 18. The apostle John says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Do you guys hear that? Let me read that again. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. 
for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. What's John saying there? He's talking about the cross. He's talking about the doctrine of imputation. He's saying that, he's saying that if, you are, if you have fear, it's because you have not understood the fullness of the fact that perfect love should be casting out that fear. Well, what's perfect love? You guys remember 1 Corinthians 13? Jeff taught it. What's perfect love? It's Jesus. Jesus is perfect love. So perfect love has casted out fear. The reality is, is that our, the truth of it is, is that our standing before God, apart from perfect love, Jesus, is wrath. That we deserve the sinful life that we lived, our sinful by nature, by choice, that before God we deserve hell, we deserve wrath. But perfect love, Jesus took that on himself and gave us something else. He gave us his purity, his righteousness, his perfection, and imputed it to us. So when God sees us, he doesn't see our filth, our sin. He sees Jesus' purity. And he absorbed the wrath of God on the cross for our sin. That's the gospel, right? That's the gospel. So perfect love cast out fear. When did Jesus cast out fear? On the cross. If you're still afraid in the sense that that's talking about, then you don't understand what happened at the cross. Jesus absorbed your sin. Perfect love casted out fear in that moment when he said it is finished, it's over, it's done. It's finished. Perfect love has cast out fear. Apart from the imputation of Christ's purity into our sinful lives, we have to fear his nature. But we are now atoned for and his nature or wrath and holy justice is appeased. And so now we can live Proverbs 14, 26, and the fear of the Lord is strong confidence and his children shall have a place of refuge. Man, I remember being a little kid, I just, if my dad was with me, man, I was safe. Because <laughs> my dad could just take on anyone, right? <laughs> I mean, my dad was big. He's the same height as me now, but he was big then, man. If I was with my dad, I didn't care. I just grab his hand, my dad's going to take care of it. I mean, my dad was big, so I feared him, and he spanked me hard. <laughs> but I knew my dad loved me. I never questioned when my dad loves me. I still know he loves me. And that's our God. Of course he's dangerous. He's the king. <laughs> but he's a good king, right? He loves us. I mean, he proved it. Jesus swept blood in the garden. He was so terrified of what he was going to do for us. Take the wrath of God. We don't even know what that means. We don't even understand what he did on the cross for us. He proved it. Perfect love has cast out fear. Amen? We got to stand. We're just going to sing the doxology together. Praise God from all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And again. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost.